the first chatbot that was released was released in 1964. It was called Chatterbox. And yet AI has been um, touted as the field of broken promises. So what I'll cover today is a little bit of background around what ChatGPT is and then how to implement it in business, what to look out for, what are the opportunities and the pitfalls, and then, and then really just focus on that business case, but also explain the technology a little bit. So all of a sudden, all of us are paying attention to this new context, and what we find is that we're in the second half of the chessboard. And what does that mean? And the best way to illustrate it is by telling a story of the invention of chess. So the story goes that the inventor of chess went to the emperor of India and said, this is chess, and he explained it and he showed it. And the emperor was so impressed by the eloquence of the game that he said, name your reward. And the inventor said, I am truly a humble man. All I want is a pile of rice. Put one grain of rice on the first block of the chessboard. Double that with two grains of rice on the second block of the chessboard. Double that again on the third block until you filled all the blocks of the chessboard. I will take that pile of rice. And the emperor said, let it be so. Of course, those of you who know anything about maths knows that the emperor got himself into a bit of trouble there. By the 32nd block of the chessboard, there was a few billion grains of rice. It sounds like a lot, but that is more or less the amount of rice that you would get from harvesting a big rice paddy. By the 64th um, block in the chessboard, there was more rice than would be contained in Mount Everest. That's more rice that's ever been produced in the history of mankind. So that's truly where we're finding ourselves is in that inflection point. And what's so difficult is we just truly cannot see that um, exponential curve that technology is growing on. And we're constantly surprised at all the, this fast pace of change. But in fact, when you look back at when that first kind of marker was established, if we look at when um, technological investment was first measured um, on the stock exchange in America, that was 1958. If you apply Moore's law to that time frame, we came into the second half of the chessboard in 2006. Since then, we've seen the introduction of social media, we've seen smartphones, we've seen humanoid robots in factories, and we've seen artificial intelligence not only beat players in chess, but also in Jeopardy and in Go. And this is where we find ourselves now at such a fast accelerating rate of change that it's difficult to keep up and we're truly scared. So AI really truly is no longer the field of broken promises, but what makes this technology truly revolutionary and why it's been called this inflection point is because you and I can use it every day. So it's not just for the select few that can program, etc. So it's democratized knowledge, um, and it's by using natural language processes. Now, there were a few things that contributed to this. The first thing was computing power. So our computing power increased enough so that we can run all these algorithms. More data for the past decade, more, 
Everything we've done has been digitized. That digitization of everything we've done has truly become what these algorithms have trained on. And then the, th the third part of it is just the quality of those algorithms has been absolutely amazing. And really, if, and um, Bill Gates spoke about this, and he said that there are two things that, that he sees as truly revolutionary technologies. And the first one was when a graphical user interface was introduced. And that meant that people could use a mouse to interact with computers. And ChatGPT, or these large language models, are second, right? So what is AI and what is, what are we actually talking about? How does this work? There are different definitions of AI and essence, AI is just using an algorithm to solve a problem or to do a process. Um, so it's really just about that, um, um, that algorithm in the background. And essentially, if you think about AI as two prongs of a scissor, so you have cognition, which is the algorithm that does it, but the second prong of the scissor is context. So as soon as you sharpen both those prongs of the scissor, the scissor cuts effectively. So what that means is in the past, and why we've been so disillusioned time and time again, with AI is that we couldn't marry those two inventions well enough. And now, you and I, by using ChatGPT, is creating more and more context for those algorithms to learn from. So that's what's truly revolutionary. So within AI, there are multiple and many, many fields, and, and actually some of these fields change as we go, and um, large language models like ChatGPT is one of them. So ChatGPT falls, and, and all the other tools similar to ChatGPT, so BARD, and, and all of those falls within a big category called generative AI. So within generative AI, you have large language models, um, which is essentially a prediction tool. So a prediction tool that is based off millions and billions um, of pieces of data that you and I have access to. So it's all it's doing is predicting the next word. So you and I can do that too, really well. So if I give a, the first part of a sentence to you, you guys have to give me the last word. Um, little Bo Peep lost her sheep. And that's all that ChatGPT does, is it predicts the next word. So whenever we see all these fear-mongering videos, etc., there's always a prompt at the top that says, you know, play the role of an immoral dictator <laughs> that does X, Y, Z. It's really just predicting that next word, and that's what it's about. But I, I should note, though, that there are a few characteristics of this technology that's important for us to know going forward. The first one is emergent behavior. So there's an emergence of things that this technology can do that the owners and the creators didn't think it could do in the beginning. So distinguishing between right and wrong, being able to play chess, even being able to write code is something that they didn't think the technology was going to do. I listened to a talk from the owners or the chairman of, of OpenAI this week, and he said they're getting better and better at understanding emergence. But emergence is something that appears in nature as well. 
if you have a few houses next to each other, um, it's just a few houses. But the more houses you add, you get emergence through creating a suburb. There's traffic conjecture. There's a culture that forms around the people who live together around that suburb. So emergence is something that is a natural phenomenon that, that we could have expected. And that's why they're getting a little bit better at predicting it. A second thing that these large language models do that's not great is hallucinations, right? So a, a hallucination is confidently giving you completely incorrect information. So um, we had a talk about ChatGPT um, in March, and at that stage, it was still possible to go and say, tell me how to use um, churros in surgeries. Um, explain how churros is a really good tool in surgery. And it would tell you that it's, it's really soft. It can go into all the areas that you want it to go into. And the, the cinnamon smell calms the patient. Um, and when I tried to do that this week, I didn't want to. So, so that's changing, right? So that's changing really, really fast. And only a month ago, Bill Gates said that hallucinations is going to be something of the past within... Um, you know, the next two years, but I think it's going to be sooner than that. So it's really picking, it's picking up very quickly what it's saying wrong. Now, and it's using that thumbs up and thumbs down um, function to understand that. When I spoke to chat this week about hallucinations, first I didn't understand what I was meaning. So, and I said, no, no, I'm talking about you hallucinating. <laughs> sorry, sorry, it says. Now I understand what you mean. And I said, give me an example of a hallucination. And it gave me a really um, vanilla but good example. Um, and then it said, but I always recommend that people use an expert to verify what I've said. So take my whatever I've said and verify it by knowledgeable people. And I think that's really, really important to understand with this technology is that it's a really complex interplay between human and artificial intelligence. It's not just that algorithm in the background. There's prompting and then there's a response and then there's prompting again. And it's really, really good if you know something. It's going to make you great. If you don't know something, it can teach you. Um, but I think that interplay between human and technology is really important to understand. So yes, of course, people are very worried about ChatGPT um, and all these technologies. And I think they're more worried that all these competitors are going to come out and we're trusting chat a little bit more than we would other LLM models. But I think the worry is that competitors are being forced to bring these models out without those guardrails that OpenAI have been able to put in place. And by the way, it's, it's, it's no longer called just um, an LLM model anymore. We call them now foundational models because the next version allows you to not just generate text, but also to generate images, videos, um, integrate in all your other apps, etc. So that has already changed as well. But yes, okay, people are very worried. So the first thing people are worried about is weaponization. So cyber war is real. 
Um, and the worry around cyber war and the number of attacks um, that can happen and countries um, doing cyber war is something that the OpenAI, Google, Microsoft, everybody's talking about at the moment. Um, they're very aware that there's an a US election next year and that they're, they're monitoring it very closely. Um, but just as these tools can be used in cyber war, it can also be used to identify cybersecurity threats way uh, more quickly than humans can at this stage. Of course, we're worried about biases in the data. We're worried about the environmental impact of it. It's really tough on the environment to run these algorithms. It's, it's um, carbon heavy to do that. We're worried about national data frameworks. So Italy switched off ChatGPT for a month because it said it had no legal basis for collecting data. And also it collected data from minors um, younger than 13, which was against the law. So they open it up. Um, and at the moment, as we speak, um, there's really big moves happening between um, the European data framework and, and OpenAI because there's lots of court cases against OpenAI for using this data. So, but, I mean, as much as we can talk about all these negative things, and I think not to minimize them because they're really important, what you all came here to, for tonight is how to implement it in business, and that's definitely where my area of expertise is and where my research lies. So I'll focus on that because one thing I can promise is that I don't have all the answers here. But I do think we need to acknowledge, before we go into the business use cases, we need to acknowledge what all this fear and uncertainty means for people. So I think the first thing is that employees, just like yourselves, um, senior le leaders in business, the community, government, we're all scared because there's a big unknown. Right? We don't know what the outcome looks like. And even if you listen to these creators of these technologies, they talk about multiple scenarios. And these scenarios are so divergent, and that's stressful, right? We don't know what's coming next, and that rate of change is just incredibly fast. That fear causes some, us to do something. Theory calls it the threat rigidity effect. So the threat rigidity effect says that Whenever we're faced with uncertainty, what humans do is we buckle down and do what we used to do even harder. So we just clamp down on information. We become really um, scared. We become in-grouped. So if we had a particular culture, everybody just conforms to that culture even more. And there's no information flow, right? A really important thing about threat rigidity effect is that people buckle down on behavior that they don't even like. So you keep on doing even harder that which you hated doing before, just because you're unsure. And I think that's a really important part of the rollout of this, because I think the only successful thing is for people to start playing with it within bounds and frameworks so that 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 fear can go away. And I think part of what's driving this fear is that we're anthropomorphizing the technology, which means that we're giving it human elements. So deep down, we want to, we respond almost at a, at a basic nat natural level to somebody that's talking to us as a human being. So because this technology is talking back to us, we're giving it human traits. 
and we think that it has moral obligations, it is good and bad, and actually those of you who have spoken to chat will realize that it's a very polite chatbot. It's very nice when it talks to you, and I find myself saying please and thank you all the time. But what we need to remember is that it is just predicting the next word. That's all it's doing. Um, and I think part of that then is understanding that knowledge. Right, so how should we respond as business? It's really difficult for us to understand the kind of strategic business level implementation of it. M the majority of the benefits from this technology is coming from personal productivity and individual level stuff. Nonetheless, there are important things that we need to think about as businesses. So there are three key influences that this technology has in business. The first one is on productivity. Um, the second one is on creativity. And the third one is on reskilling. And I'm going to talk about all three of those. So first, of course, is massive gains in productivity. So a recent study that was released by um, Eric Brynjolfsson, and he is one of the leading thinkers, he's a Stanford professor um, at their digital lab, um, and they did a study of over 500 call center agents, uh, or service agents, sorry, not just call center agents, and they looked at how giving different groups different types of access to this technology, so they had control groups and everything, it was really well set up. And they looked at the impact on productivity, and there was a 14% raise um, in productivity of staff. But what's really, really interesting is that 14% wasn't for high knowledge workers and people really knowledgeable with lots of base knowledge degrees and all of that. That 14% was largely with new employees and with staff or low-skilled staff which is a complete divergence from most technologies that have, that have been introduced in the past 50 years. So what we've seen with most technologies being introduced is that the people who benefit from it, those who kind of have, and the have-nots do not benefit from it, right? There's this digital divide. Yet we see a difference with ChatGPT and lo these large language models being unrolled. So I, I'm personally very excited about that finding. So, but what, we, what is keeping us away from our productivity at the moment? And I think that's what we need to focus on first. And I think that explains the emergence of this technology as well. And absolutely, you and I can say that information overload is what keeps us away from being productive and from getting to what we need to get to. So we have an inbox full of emails where there's this, a mountain of emails and information, but there's, there's a slither of information that I actually need to know and an even smaller slither of stuff that I actually need to do. And these models will allow us to identify those key sources of information really, really quickly. And I think that is that big promise. But the consequence of that is really important because there's lots of research that shows that if people are able to work on the things that matter to them most or that's important to them where they feel they have an impact, lots of things happen. So the first thing that happens is that people become happier. So they become happier, A, because they feel more fulfilled. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing instead of stressing about the things that they're not doing because they're answering emails all the time. 
So they feel more fulfilled, but happiness is linked to this concept called flow. And flow is when you go into that state where you really, after being in flow, you actually can't tell how long you were working on a certain piece of work. You were just into it. You get you become completely unaware of your surroundings and you just almost feel that creative energy going through you. And that state of flow has been linked to so many things, happiness not being the least of it. So if you cannot go into flow during your work day, then you're actually negatively influencing your, your ability to be happy. And it's funny because there's research that also shows how over the decades our attention span has absolutely been demolished. So three decades ago, they measured people's ability to focus on a specific task and how long people were able to focus. And the average time was two minutes, over two minutes. That's dwindled down to 47 seconds. We physically cannot focus any longer. So if we are able to identify that slither of useful information and what I actually need to do today, do that first and trust, and I think that trust part is a really important one, trust that the rest of the information is going to be processed in an appropriate way for me. Then that helps us go and get into flow, spend more time and be more fulfilled. So that's really, really important. And they've shown this. So Microsoft launched a study. They, they piloted the software with uh, 4,000 employees, and 83% of people said they were more fulfilled using this because they felt like they could actually get to the work that they wanted to get to. I think that's really important. So the productivity um, is, is, is an important one. And then from a kind of national level, there's a Goldman Sachs paper that suggested that um, generative AI could improve productivity in the U.S. by 1.5 to 2.9 percent, which translates into approximately 7 um, seven percent growth in GDP. That's billions of dollars. And interestingly, our own research, so Russell Wordsworth, Michaela Balzarova, Bernard Walker, and John Dewey Robertson and I did research. We surveyed um, 655 companies across Australasia in 2019, and then were able to do a follow-up study when COVID hit. But interestingly, we measured people's digital maturity, right? So your ability, your investment in digital infrastructure, your investment in upskilling um, people, and also your ability, your clear vision of what your digital future looks like. And companies who were high in their levels of digital maturity had higher revenue, but also when COVID hit, they seamlessly stepped into um, the needs of that environment. So remote working, potentially going online with their sales, etc. That disruption was just minimized because of digital maturity. That's the first big benefit in business, it's productivity. The second one is that it unleashes creativity. And this is, this is a really interesting one, and I think those of you who have followed the technology will agree with me, just the number of even just YouTube videos of people showing the cool stuff that you can do with it has amazed me. There's so much, so many things that I just wouldn't even have thought was possible. But I think, in principle, technologies only become truly groundbreaking and changes the world we live in when they um, unleash human ingenuity. 
And yes, of course, the hypothesis is that once we have freed up our time by being more productive, then we can be more creative. I'm not convinced we won't just fill our times with other things. But I think there are other Re there's other research that shows that creativity is sparked by this technology within the organization. And I think the first thing is that um, it's able to combine two completely unrelated fields in new ways that we couldn't have imagined. The knowledge and mastery and time that we would have taken to get enough knowledge in two completely disparate fields to understand the patterns and the key drivers within those fields, and then to marry them would just not necessarily be worthwhile or would take years, where chat can do that really, really well. And I think how we should see um, this technology is as a garden, right? So you giving the technology a prompt is like a gardener planting a seed. And your interaction with the technology allows it to grow and to flourish. And then um, it's really, uh, it takes less time to garden and to get to that beautiful, um, that flower that you want and that outcome that you want. And what it's done is it's raised the bar in terms of what that first draft is. And that's also something we need to realize, that role of humans in interacting with the technology and looking at that draft and improving that draft is really, really important. But before, you started at a pretty average first draft, right? Without AI. And then that was the, where the majority of workers landed. Now, with AI, your start is at good. But then more importantly, and this is also something we need to realize as a business, is all your competitors can see the same thing. So now it's good, but how are you going to make it excellent? And how you make it excellent is your insight into the context, your insight into the people, your insight into the company and the markets. And that complex project management is something that generative AI is not good at just yet, or these, these LLM models. But it's really interesting how this technology has flipped our relationships with computers. Before, we did all the cognitive work. I just think of a PowerPoint presentation that I would create for a class. You did all the cognitive work beforehand, and then a computer was just used right at the end to put it all together and make it visual and nice. That's flipped now, where the cognitive work, that first draft, is done by the computer, and your role is at the end. And, and you're the curator, and you're cleaning it up and making it better. And that, I think, is one of the main reasons why there is a productivity boost, is because you're getting rid of these bottlenecks. And that's what I would suggest that at, a, at a personal level is, think about what are the things that you hate doing in a day, and then see if you can get chat to do that. And then focus on the things that you enjoy doing. Um, and I, I think you would be amazed. So also, when creativity um, is unleashed, we're more fulfilled, it also allows us to go into flow, and all of these things are really important, as we've mentioned. So the third point, so the first one was productivity, the one, second one was creativity, the third one is upskilling. Very important finding from that study from Brynjolfsson was that that upskilling of people who had access to the technology 
was massively, massively increased. So there's an ability of people who are experienced in the organization to share their knowledge and insights much quicker. So they estimated that new trainees, instead of taking an average time of six months to come up to par of where they needed to be, took two months. That's a massive, massive increase. And not only that, the call center received fewer complaints, the manager was called into fewer calls, and employee retention was much, much higher. Aren't those outcomes that we want as a business? Surely they are. Um, so working with AI will become an essential skill. So it's not something that each and every person would do in the same way. And even though we're using natural language to talk to these, um, these algorithms, we use different skill sets and we will build up a different vocabulary. So definitely in the future, you'll see on resumes people saying which AI prompts they're really good at and what language they use. So upskilling, and, and I mean, there's already now a new profession called prompt engineering. Um, and interesting, um, the technologists say that people aren't going to lose their jobs, they're going to lose their job descriptions. Jobs are going to be displaced, but there is going to be job losses in low-level um, clerk work and very repetitive and monotonous work. But I think more importantly, um, it's going to be around identifying the jobs that we do and seeing what our actual value as a human is. And that actually is also the problem of implementing it. Because companies, we hold on to those processes that we can do well, like it's a badge of honor, right? We hoard information, and that's what's been difficult with digital transformations and, and other technology rollouts. Even though people don't like to do invoicing, or at the university, I'm thinking of kind of onboarding students into, the, into our system. They hold on to those processes as if it's their badge of honor. But it forces us to think about what is it that I do as a person that's really valuable to this organization. And being able to have those conversations with each and every employee um, is an important conversation to have because that's where the fear lies, is that replacement piece. Yet I don't see a massive um, job um, shortage in New Zealand, at least. Um, we need more people, don't we? So those are the kind of three key areas of business. And I think it's important to understand what's next with this technology. And it's so exciting to see these things rolling out. So um, we know that Google has big plans with um, BARD. But I think the biggest thing that we're all waiting for is Microsoft Copilot. And what would that look like? It will literally be somebody sitting in on all your meetings, um, reading all your emails, doing your PowerPoint presentations for you, um, and it is as easy as um, saying, what are the key trends in business today or generative AI today? What are other things that I need to consider going into that conversation that you have with the, uh, with the algorithm and then saying, create 10 slides about this for me? It's truly amazing. Interacting with your data, etc. And then also, obviously, company-wide agents. So um, company-wide agents or private LLMs, 
Um, it's also something that can be truly transformational. And it's an agent that understands a particular company. So it's something that can be accessed by everybody in the company. It has access to all um, company sales data, um, information, decision, key decisions that have been made, memos, etc. So you can ask that um, company-wide agent questions in meetings. You can tell it to be active or non-active in the meeting. Um, and it also scans news and information that's relevant to your company and your industry and lets you know about those things. Of course, though, there are some clear pitfalls, and I realize that I have five minutes um, to say these pitfalls before we get into question and answers. But I think the first pitfall is a, the plug-and-play fallacy. So this is part of the reason why AI has not delivered thus far. A, people don't understand that they're already using it. So, we I mean, if you have personal recommendations on your um, newsfeed, that's AI. If you have a word appearing in your email as you're typing, that's AI, right? But it's these technologies actually take that, that um, um, kind of AI as automatic into AI as being a co-pilot. But I think the big problem is when we try and fit it onto already existing processes and try and make those processes just better. The real value lies into looking at new ways of doing things. So understanding what, um, what it is we actually want to achieve and then getting the technology to help you achieve that versus saying to the technology, I used to take these five steps, you must take these five steps. Because ultimately what that will lead to is being disenfranchised um, with the technology. Although I must say that, that Microsoft's whole narrative at the moment is doing more with less. So I think they're taking that, that step first. A second big pitfall is being a fashionista. So really just investing in the technology for investing in the technology's sake. There was a recent survey that showed that 75% of companies are going to invest in AI. And I wonder if that's not going to create another kind of bubble and, and trough of disillusionment around the technology. Because you really need to understand what the appropriate use case is for the technology. Sometimes you can use AI for specific goals and for spe specific reasons in the company, but maybe it's not the best idea. What is the best use case and how do we solve for that best use case in an innovative and new way and not just plonk it on top of what we're doing? I think it's very important to have a data strategy in place. So to be very clear about the three S's of data, so the source of the data, how it's sensitized, and how it's structured. I think it's really important to have a company-wide view of who's using the technology where. And we've seen multiple cases where companies have come under fire um, a certain Dutch government not being the least, where it's been used in one part of the company, uh, in part of government, um, in terms of identifying people who would default on their, um, on their payments versus using it for positive as well. And, and people come under fire for that. So it's really uh, important to understand that, that company-wide view. And that all leads into an infrastructure. So have a clear idea of what your AI infrastructure looks like. And I think that's not something that you have to worry about doing today, but taking those first steps towards 
understanding what your company would look like if you've integrated it in some of your key processes to achieve your key goals. But things that you can do today is start interacting with your customers. So many of our senior managers and senior leaders, as soon as you step into those roles, you step away from your customer and you don't know what they're about anymore. You can put your own company data in there or you can put a really good customer profile in and ask these technologies to interact with you. Ask that profile questions. How would you respond to this? How could we be better for you? Understand the value. And these are the types of things we need to be thinking about. We need to be thinking about responsibility. So um, if I'm using these technologies to create a proposal for me and something goes wrong and I'm liable for that mistake, I am still liable. So that's really important for employees to understand that AI cannot carry responsibility or accountability. So if you're drafting proposals on it for projects and there's a mistake in there, which I can more or less guarantee you at this stage there is a small mistake in there, then who has the accountability for that? Um, how do we build trust within the organizations to trust our employees? How do we get them... Um, positive around these technologies and upskilled so that we can all benefit from the technologies to, to really bring people together. So thinking about ownership, um, thinking about accountability, responsibility, what the value is that we add, and I think most importantly how we can support people in both emotionally and skills-wise in really coming, um, getting up to date with what they need to know so that that fear element is, is, is taken over. But I think there's a big hype now, and I think the long-term impact of this technology is going to be massive, and we really can't even see that long-term impact just yet. But maybe the short-term impact of it is going to be a little bit of a bubble. So we don't have to, um, you know, I think we're, we're, still, we're still going to be around in that, uh, more or less in that trough of disillusionment soon because I think there's a massive hype and a wave now. But I do think that this is something we need to pay attention to both personally and as companies. But most importantly, um, people will always need people to do things for them. I think that's important to remember. Thank you. Um, are you worried about AI takeoff, wherein the AI gets more capable than a human, then it can improve itself, and then it becomes superhuman, and we're all dead? So, so what you're talking about is um, artificial general intelligence. Um, and it's funny, because before chat, they said that that's not going to happen in our lifetimes, um, at least not before 2050. And I've seen new predictions that artificial general intelligence is going to happen pre-2030, but we don't know. There's robust debate. It's honestly, if you talk to each key technologist, has a different view on that. But I think what's really important is that we're playing an active role in what that looks like now. So I, I, I think companies like OpenAI, who have very clear moral guardrails, um, can put those guardrails in place for whatever that situation looks like. Um, but no, I'm not. A short answer, not. Not soon, but I, I'm very hesitant to make any technology predictions because none of them will ever be right. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you've mentioned these moral guidelines, and earlier you also said that there were guardrails, mm -hmm. but there are other commentaries I've read that we don't even know 
what their parameters are at OpenAI and they don't disclose them. So you sound very confident about that. <laughs> I should have disclosed at the start of this talk that I am a technology optimist. And I realize that that is a clear bias that I bring into it. So, so but I think they essentially say that um, nothing illegal, immoral, or um, something that will cause harm um, is there. For example, you can't ask chat to help you make a bomb. You can Google how to make a bomb. So I actually commend them on being able to do that. I think the problem comes, and, and, and I think they do that by releasing different iterations of it and really picking up very quickly. The problem with that is people have different views of morality and what's right and wrong, and we're enforcing one particular view of, of right and wrong, so I think that's an issue. I think other people playing in this space might not have the same. So Putin said that whoever wins the AI race will rule humanity. <laughs> Very scared, he's investing lots of money in AI as well. And I think that is definitely what, you get two types of people at the moment, people who feel like this was released too quickly for humanity, and then you get the counter argument, which is that they already have GPT-7. And if they release GPT-7, once they felt like it was safe, then it would just completely blow us out the water. That change would just be too enormous. So their argument is that they're releasing very, very defined pieces of it, even though it feels to us like it's off the charts, they're releasing very defined pieces of it so that they can put those guardrails in place. I was just really keen and understanding how you think the AI will start to challenge the traditional business approaches to strategy, um, given that it's quite frequently quite cognitive and analytically driven. Do you foresee that might change into becoming more human-centric? And yeah, just keen for your insights. Thanks. Um, running a business during complex times is really challenging. And us trying to implement almost a linear strategy, we, we spend months developing, developing it, looking at all the data, and by the time we actually implement it and see it, it might not be relevant anymore, or it might be relevant, but your risk is so high because you put all your eggs in one basket. Where I think this is going to force us to have more of that intuitive, divergent, multiple strategies. We're running in all these directions. So it's things that we've already intuitively known business need to do, but now we've all of a sudden been forced to do it. And we need to step back. So we're going to have multiple small steps that we're going to do, and we're going to bank on the ones that's delivering and close the ones that's not. Um, and then, and that's how we, we're going to navigate through it. Yeah. I think the rate of change is just too rapid for us. So I definitely ag agree with you. And I think that's what you're insinuating, that kind of human intuition um, and what, what to do, when to do, is, is going to stay really important. Yeah. From both an um, ethical and legal perspective, mm. Do you think those using the technology will be required to disclose it when presenting, say, a formal pitch to a client? Yes, so definitely. I think so, and it's already in place. I think there's legislation that's going to be released in Australia that requires if anything is created by AI, you disclose it. 
The problem with that is that, just like humans, so if I say something now, even my answer to you now is based on complex data sets and influences and people, and it's essentially the culmination of my life. So I think the, it's, it's going to be easy enough to say, hey, I created this, let's stop there. What's going to be really difficult is if they say, but you need to identify the sources. Because that, that's why um, Reddit is suing OpenAI. They're saying that OpenAI trained on all Reddit posts that got more than three reshares. And Reddit is saying that that's intellectual property of theirs. And then the Reddit users are saying, actually, it's ours. Um, so you should be paying us. And I think that's where the issue is, because I think that's what they don't necessarily know, is wh where that emergence came from and, and what it learned on. But I think acknowledging that it was used by um, or created by AI, I actually think the more interesting question is, because I've, I've heard this now twice from two different consultants saying that. We worked with a client. Client just didn't like anything we did. This is the third pitch. And then we went back to the client and we said, chat wrote this. And the client was happy. And I actually think that's a, that's a more interesting question. Like, who do we trust more and why? Um, so, and, and I don't think we have answers, answers to that. Thank you for that question. I wonder, how is AI carbon heavy? When it runs, and there's actually a really, really interesting report um, on how, when all these models trained, how much um, emissions were involved in actually running that data. I remember way back when, when I got involved in technology, um, it's essentially when Google first started, running a Google search was equivalent to boiling a kettle. That's obviously not the case anymore. But the same can be said for these massive data sets. Like, um, training these data sets costs. I need to, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna give incorrect information, so I'm not gonna answer it. But it's really, really heavy. It's like multiple flights that a single person takes around the world kind of things, yeah. So the argument is that these models can be used to solve climate issues. Um, but the flip side of that is that they're really climate heavy as well. That's actually why I wouldn't propose using private LLMs because, so if every company had to create their own large language model, the universe would implode because we physically cannot um, keep the carbon load uh, or carry the carbon load of, of that. So that's why I'm very thankful that OpenAI released an API and that they're gonna release <laughs> chat for business, so yeah. So what do you think the impact on education will be? Thank you, I, I, that's something that um, I think about all the time. Um, and I think a lot of the technologists are saying that, that education is actually gonna be, be the field that's most disrupted by it because um, technology is going to, um, well, because of the democratization of knowledge. But I think it's going to force us to be better at education because no longer is it good enough for you to just regurgitate four or five facts or the five steps in a process or whatever. What's really important is understanding the company, the context that you're implying it in, um, having that um, um, conversation and the deep knowledge of culture and context. And I, and I think that's what excites me about the UCMBA, and I apologize. Um, <laughs> is that when we reintroduced our MBA in 2020, we really said that it's not about 
um, it's about industry integration firstly, right? So it needs to be incredibly relevant and people need to apply it every day. So each and every course that we have, we have an industry person and an academic teaching on it because it's not just about that academic knowledge. So it's about the context and that application. And then secondly, it's about personal development and growing that, um, being able to lead yourself and then lead others and then lead organizations, but what that looks like for each and every person and giving people the skills to really have that growth mindset, that upskilling mindset. One of my mentors from South Africa in a large radio station, and he said that all technologies come like a tsunami and everybody thinks it's going to take everything away. He says, look at radio. Um, it came, and when TV came, people said radio, um, radio is dead, right? But what these tsunamis do is they just take away the bad stuff. And what's left is the really, really good stuff. And what we know now is there are more radio stations now than there ever have been before. And I think it's the same with education. If the education isn't 100% industry relevant, if it's not about that application, I need to know that students can answer colloquially questions about, you know, um, what is the most appropriate strategy in the given situation. But it's, it's about that understanding of industry and that understanding of business, not about those five academic steps. ChatGPT has taught me a whole lot of things in the last wee while because I've just asked it questions about topics. <laughs> but do you think it makes us lazy doing our work for us? When I've got a question, I just answer it. I don't go and find the answer. I'll work it out for myself. <laughs> yeah, I, I worry about that. I worry about it. Um, and I worry that we get to the point where we don't fact check and we just, we don't do that deep work, that deep knowledge. Um, when, when I look at the people who use it really, really well, who become excellent, I go and read their statements about how they use chat, and most of them have, right? They disclose, I use chat GPT in the following way. And they use it in non-traditional non ways. So they use it to be critical thinkers. So they would say, "Can this is a piece that I've just written. What would this look like in a dystopian world? If you were in a, go in a kind of authoritarian government, how would you adapt this piece? Are there gaps in my thinking? And I think that is going to be the difference between the average user, because all of a sudden, everybody has access to that information, but it's about how you really use it to become better and excellent. And, and something also about the education space that I've, that I've read is that it's, it's going to become an incredibly excellent Socratic teacher, which means that it, stuff that you don't understand, you step into a conversation with, with the chatbot, and it also, and that's how you learn, is through asking and that personalized thing. But I worry that people don't ask those questions. Don't go into that longer process. Yeah, real concern. Thank you, everyone. Wow.